Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. People who don't get their face on the dollar bill or the fi- or the twenty, um, they don't get musicals made after them. But these are the guys who uh, put their shoulders to the grindstone or just kept grinding it out and doing the work. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Eric Sterner talking about a new multi-article series on founding father John Rutledge, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by the Camden Archives and Museum, now featuring the interactive exhibit, Turning Points, The Battles of Camden, 1780 and 1781. For more information, visit classicallycarolina.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author, Eric Sterner and he'll be sharing with us his new research on founding father, John Rutledge. Eric Sterner's study of Rutledge, featured on www.allthingsliberty.com, the homepage of the Journal of the American Revolution, is a three-part series and a lengthy research project analyzing the life, challenges, and critical impact of John Rutledge of South Carolina, one of our, I guess, lesser-studied founding fathers. When you study Rutledge's life and you kind of get away from the larger names involved, uh, he was at the First Continental and Second Continental Congress, you start to see that he wasn't really a bit player, but each of these men from each corner of the American colonies and eventually the United States played critical roles in the shaping uh, early on in our country's history. Rutledge, like many members of the Continental Congress, uh, had some legislative achievements, but he also fought for some causes that were lost in the process. So much of the founding era is about debates. It's not necessarily about uh, winning every argument, but the shaping of our country was done by people throwing a lot of things against the wall and seeing what stuck. Sometimes they did, and in Rutledge's case, sometimes they didn't. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Eric Sterner. Eric Sterner, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. Tell us about your background. Uh, well, I've, I've spent a career in government in the private sector, working on national security and aerospace issues. Uh, I was primarily focused on where technological change creates new challenges for national security, or for Congress, Department of Defense, NASA, a uh, handful of government contractors, and in the nonprofit world for a little while. Uh, but I always loved history. I used it in my work. Uh, I wrote about it on the side, and I um, started writing for JAR in 2015, and, and uh, super psyched when they when they released my book, uh, Anatomy of a Massacre, about the Nantucket Massacre, uh, late last year. So that's that's me in three nutshells. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, in 2019, we our family was looking to take a vacation, and uh, ironically, we wanted to go to Charleston. I hadn't been there before. We wanted to stay downtown so we could walk the things, and I, I stumbled across the Rutledge House Inn, uh, 
which was his private home that he built for his marriage. Uh, had a built, he started building on it in 1763. And I thought, wow, what a great chance to stay in the house of a founding father. He did sign the Constitution, and I thought, this is fantastic. So we booked it, visited the city. Uh, I didn't know much about South Carolina. I, I knew even less about John Rutledge. Um, but having stayed in his home, it piques your interest, and you start wanting to find out more and just started digging. Tell us about the early life of John Rutledge. Uh, well, his uncle came to um, Charleston in the, from Ireland in the 1720s, uh, and then John's father followed, and then John was born in 1739 um, to a 15-year-old mother, to his father from Ireland and, and, his, and his father's 15-year-old wife. And uh, as I said, his uncle had already established the family, and the extended family was uh, riding Charleston as, as as Charleston grew in wealth and influence uh, during this period. So they were pretty well ensconced in um, had access to all the levers of power uh, in Charleston, uh, both economically, socially, um, and politically. Uh, he was the oldest child; uh, had four younger siblings. Um, it was a family that was well off and it was politically connected. So he got a good solid education that was available in Charleston. Uh, he studied law locally, um, and eventually, uh, shipped out to London to study law at the Middle Temple, which was one of the sort of standard law schools, uh, in London. He passed the bar, moved back to Charleston and opened his own practice in 1761. And from there he was off and running. What was Rutledge's first political appointment like? Well, it was, it was quite a quite a story for him. He uh, right after he opened his practice, he won a seat to the Commons House of Assembly, which generally gets referred to as the General Assembly. It was basically the colonial legislature, and he stepped into a battle that had been going on for some time between the uh, legislature and the new governor Thomas Boone, and they'd been arguing over typical. Uh, executive legislative things, uh, spending budgets, how much, who controls what money. And Boone, being new to the situation, kept proroguing the assembly, which meaning he wouldn't dissolve it and call for new elections, but he wouldn't let them meet either. Um, so this went on for a while. New election rolls around and puts Christopher Gadsden in office. Now, Gadsden is a little bit of a, of a uh, he's not quite the patriot he's going to become, but he's a little bit radical. And Boone refuses to administer the oath to Gadsden because Gadsden is a little bit too far out there for him, too independent already. And Boone's argument is that the election law was flawed. So they, the legislature had to respond, and Rutledge ended up chairing the committee that was going to argue the case, basically present the response. Now, Rutledge did something really interesting here, and I think very creative. He didn't debate Boone's points over the flaws in the election law. He went right to a constitutional argument and said that constitutional law takes precedence and the right of representation lies in the Constitution and our rights as English people, as Englishmen. So he's totally changed the, the battlefield, as it were, on Boone and make, they made this constitutional case. Now, Boone won't discuss it. He adjourns the assembly delays future assembly uh, sessions, and it's a stalemate until he finally leaves in 1764, just basically washed his hands of the whole place. So that's why I think it, it, it's kind of important to, to Rutledge's uh, development as a, as a lawyer and as a political leader 
he's t- entirely focused on protecting uh, the rights of people uh, in South Carolina as full-fledged Englishmen. He's not interested in natural law. He's not interested in colonial charters. They're Englishmen as far as he's concerned, and they ought to be treated as such. So that that's sort of his first experience, and that leads to some political successes on his part almost right away. Uh, you get the Stamp Act Congress in 1765, right? And he's uh, already a leader. He's only 20, what, 4, 26? 26, I guess. And the delegates selected for the Stamp Act Congress are Rutledge, Christopher Gadsden, and Thomas Lynch. Now, Gadsden and Lynch are the two radicals, and Rutledge is the moderate. But he's going along with these guys. Um, and he ends up chairing the committee to draw up the petition to the House of Lords. Um, so his skills as a lawyer are already being recognized early on in his career. Could you talk a little bit about Rutledge's duties in Philadelphia during the First Continental Congress? Uh, well, it's a long, it's a long run up to it, um, but I'll, I'll drag you through it. <laughs> um, so, when Massachusetts calls for a Congress to respond to the Intolerable Acts, a bunch of quote prominent men, and every single history describes them as prominent men in Charleston, gets together and they want a general meeting across the colony to meet in July, and um, naturally it's in Charleston. And uh, officially, there's 104 participants, and that includes John and Edward Rutledge. Edward's just back from his uh, finishing his legal education in London. Um, but people came and got, went from this meeting as it rolled through several days, and the numbers reached as high as 400 at, at points, and the chair basically recognized whoever wanted to speak. And the challenge here was that the opinion varied all, it was all over the place in terms of how they should respond to the intolerable acts. Um, but there was general agreement they wanted to send an appeal to the king on colonial rights, and that's where Rutledge ended up. So the next question was, okay, well, what authorities do we give our delegates uh, when we send them to Philadelphia? And this was an impasse for this general meeting. And Rutledge proposed a, a solution. He said, issue no instructions. We won't, we won't give them any. Now, kicking the can down the road and getting the general meeting off the dime and getting them moving forward, um, but it sort of leaves the delegation wondering what they're going to do. So he, he steps in and helped draft the instructions and gave them full authority to decide what was best for the colony without telling them what was best for the colony, pledged South Carolina to abide by the decisions of the delegation, but put a poison pill in there that the decisions to be relevant to North Carolina, they had to be both legal and unanimous. And the question came up, well, what if the delegates overstep? Rutledge was very famous in the history books for saying, well, we hang them. So the delegates were Henry Middleton, who's a more moderate, Thomas Lynch, Christopher Gasden, and John Rutledge. And John's little brother, Edward, tagged along uh, at this point, too. So uh, then they ended up in this fight with a new lieutenant, well, with a standing lieutenant governor uh, who was actually in South Carolina, uh, Lieutenant Governor Bull. And he'd been having the same battles with the assembly uh, that Boone had had. So the assembly met earlier than they were supposed to, endorsed the instructions and sending the delegation to Philadelphia uh, and got that all over with before the lieutenant governor ever found out about it. Uh, A little bit of parliamentary procedure to put one over on the lieutenant governor. So they get to the First Continental Congress with this rather broad writ and the poison pill in their pocket. 
Um, it, it, you know, John Adams is such a wonderful letter writer, but his opinion of humanity is rather low, and he doesn't think much of John John Rutledge. <laughs> I wrote this down because I thought it was pretty funny. He says, quote, Mr. Rutledge, the elder, was there, but his appearance is not very promising. There is no keenness in his eye, no depth in his countenance, nothing of the profound, sagacious, brilliant, or sparkling in his first appearance. And Adams is even less kind to, to poor Edward. Uh, and Adams' opinion of Rutledge sort of stays that way. Uh, it only improves when Rutledge agrees with him, and naturally it worsens when Rutledge disagrees with him. Uh, so they get to the they get to the first Continental Congress, uh, and Rutledge takes a sort of a wait and see attitude. He's gonna he's gonna listen. He's not gonna say much. Uh, when he does step in, it's usually to slow momentum towards confrontation. He doesn't want to uh, face have a face off with the British. Uh, he reminds the delegates that they have no legal authority uh, to make a decision about what to do, and they have no means of compelling anybody to comply with any decisions they make. And that's the poison pill at work. He's basically saying you can't do anything legal and you can't enforce it. My instructions are that I can't agree to anything that's not legal. So that gives him some leverage and influence in terms of what people are going to have to do to get the South Carolinians to go along with what comes out. Um, Rutledge ends up involved in drafting the Declaration of Resolves to come out of the Congress, and he bases his arguments on the English Constitution. So he's going back to this, we're equal Englishmen, we're not um, something else like colonials. And he refuses to make a case based on natural law, so he's not a political theorist. And he's not emphasizing the colonial charters at all, because he doesn't want to be separated from his status as an Englishman, which the colonial charters and references to the colonial charters would in would normally do. So that brings us back to the trade embargo. Now, they're always popular with Americans, right? Um, but a trade embargo would hurt South Carolina arguably disproportionately. Um, its uh, economy is based almost entirely on its trade with England, uh, and there are very few alternatives for its exports. Um, its exports can go to the market the same year in which they're um, raised whereas the Middle Atlantic colonies needed a delay. So Rutledge has to figure this out. Since everybody else is arguing for a trade embargo, uh, he's opposed to one, his delegation's opposed to one, his colony's opposed to one. What does he do? He and the rest of the delegation propose an immediate and, comp and comprehensive embargo. Not a delayed one, not a phased one. And what he's doing is bluffing. He knew full well that that kind of embargo would be unacceptable to the mid-Atlantic colonies because it would hurt them. Um, so eventually, the South Carolinians do have to come around to this phased embargo that comes out of the Congress, but they carved out an exemption for rice, which is one of South Carolina's main crops. Uh, now, Rutledge felt that was the best deal he could get for South Carolina from the Continental Congress. But when he gets back home, you know, pleased with himself, he finds out he's got an immediate problem. All the people who didn't get an exemption are not happy with the delegates from South Carolina. And it's probably a good thing that his earlier threat to hang the delegates if they overstepped was more tongue-in-cheek than anything else if, if it wasn't apocryphal. Um, so he may have regretted that because now he's got his own colony in an uproar over the exemption that he carved out. 
Uh, now, the, the political leaders in Charleston figured this out. They came up with a complicated system where the rice planters would basically uh, reimburse or make a system series of payments to those hurt by the embargo. Uh, and then they all agreed that we'll eventually seek a, a repeal of the rice exemption from the Continental Congress in the future. So we won't do this again, and everybody will suffer equally. Now, personally, I think that he, he fell into that trap because he had a very narrow perspective on the colony's interests. Uh, he was Charleston born and bred. Um, as far as he was concerned, uh, the colony, Charleston was the colony, and, and Charleston sort of defined the world. So he was not instinctive. It was not instinctive for him to take uh, account of the backcountry interests or even some of the other coastal planters uh, who planted indigo and, and, and other crops. So that's his, his big misstep in the First Continental Congress that he had to recover from in the second. <laughs> what did Rutledge do during the American Revolution? Well, he went back to the Second Continental Congress, he, despite the, uh, the brouhaha over uh, the rice exemption early on. Um, and it eventually fell into his lap, um, the question of how do we create new governments and have them be legitimate uh, in the process of, of having this war. Because remember, the colonies hadn't, I mean, I know you know, as do, as do our listeners, but because the colonies hadn't declared independence, they, they were still looking for a reconciliation officially, and how do you set up a new government that's extra-constitutional, it's outside the constitutional systems. Uh, new Hampshire asked the, the Second Continental Congress for advice, Massachusetts asked for advice, and Rutledge asked for advice based on the situation in South Carolina. So uh, he came up with, uh, he was responsible for answering the question. And the way he answered the question was to say that we can uh, set up new governments that are constitutional because the British governors had essentially abandoned their posts, even though some of them had been driven out. Um, but the condition here was that these new governments, because government had to function, were just temporary expedients until there was a reconciliation with Great Britain. Uh, it, in practice, it was a fiction, but it satisfied the technicality. The argument satisfied the technicalities of the law because that Declaration of Independence hadn't happened yet, and and he still opposed such a declaration as late as the spring of 1776. Uh, what he found, I think, was was that facts on the ground were changing faster than his views. He was behind the curve here. So in 1776, he goes home to help South Carolina draft its new constitution for a temporary government. Uh, he stresses that it's temporary uh, and still hopes for reconciliation. He convinces the uh, assembly that it needs to be temporary, and they're all in, in wild agreement. Everybody's happy, except some of the more radical folks like William Henry Drayton. Uh, Drayton ends up as one of the justices and uh, uh, swears everybody in and basically says, um, nope, we are going to be independent, uh, going to be independent, we are meant to be independent, and he's a big fan of Thomas Paine, and, and he wants to have Thomas Paine read out in front of the General Assembly. Rutledge says before he allowed that, he'd ride to, he'd ride to Philadelphia and um, anything he could do to, to have a reconciliation. Now, this is in April of 1776. So he's elected president from the General Assembly uh, and held that position. The General Assembly um, basically recesses in April, 
and then Major General Henry Clinton shows up with his army, and, and uh, Sir Peter Parker shows up with the Navy in May 1776. And John Rutledge is left pretty much as the only government in town when they get there. He had some pretty famous disagreements with Charles Lee. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the good news is, I guess, that General Lee arrives on June 4th. So the word of the British arriving um, north of Charleston uh, comes near the end of May, and then Major General Lee shows up on the beginning of June. Um, and his he's still got this, he's still riding high in his military reputation. Uh, he's very He's very popular. Uh, William Moultrie writes that he was worth a thousand men, um, and everybody's feeling much more comfortable with Lee in town. He's brought a few Continentals with him. Uh, they've got about 2,700 state troops available to defend the city uh, or the town, and another 2,000 sort of short-term militia. Um, so everybody's very happy. Um, Lee being Lee, they get into some um, conflict over command authority, and Lee just starts arbitrarily issuing orders to state Carolina sta- or South Carolina state troops and militia. Rutledge, being a lawyer, pointed out that Lee didn't have the legal authority to do that, so it was a little bit of confusion uh, about whose orders they should follow, uh, Rutledge's as the commander-in-chief of state forces or Lee's. And Rutledge smoothed that over, sort of papers it over by saying, just follow Lee's orders for now. Um, and that solves that problem for a little while, uh, but it doesn't really solve it permanently. Charleston's primary defensive position at this point is is a fort on Sullivan's Island. Um, Lee goes out to inspect it. It's unfinished. Um, the traverses aren't built. Um, the rear wall's not built, so it'd be easy to, for the Navy to move around it and enfilade it. And he doesn't think it's defensible, and he proposes abandoning, abandoning the fort. Uh, Rutledge disagrees. He thinks it's very important. And most of the people agree uh, in Charleston agree with Rutledge. Still, Lee spends June developing plans to withdraw from it. He encourages Moultrie to improve the defenses, but uh, it seems that Lee's heart's not in it. He doesn't think the Americans can stand up to the Royal Navy or the British Army, um, which is an opinion he has, I guess, for most of the war. And he's trying to make sure that we can get out quickly so you don't have a bunch of troops trapped and taken prisoner. Um, Moultrie's kind of slow to improve those defenses, and the British finally attack on June 28th. The fort's still not done. Now, Lee had left a standing order, and he tells Moultrie to abandon the fort if Moultrie expends his ammunition. It's pretty straightforward. During this battle, this bombardment by the Navy, which lasts quite a while, most of the day, Moultrie writes Lee that he's close to running out of ammunition unless he's resupplied. It's kind of a, do you need to abandon the fort or not kind of question. Normally, it would imply that he needs to abandon the fort, since Lee had already told him to do that when he runs out. They can't find Lee to deliver Moultrie's letter, and it ends up in Rutledge's hands. Um, He responds by sending more powder to the fort, and reportedly tells Moultrie uh, uh, in writing that General Lee wishes you to evacuate the fort. You will not do so without an order from me. I will sooner cut off my hand than write one. So in theory, and it gets built up afterwards, there's this big battle between Rutledge and Lee over abandoning or or holding Fort Moultrie. 
Moultrie, of course, stays and, and eventually drives the British off, and, and they take quite a beating, frankly. And um, Moultrie's the hero of the day. The fort's renamed Fort Moultrie, and it's a great victory. And some of those early South Carolina histories, they're comparing it with um, Lexington or with Concord and the retreat to Boston and, and um, Bunker Hill. So uh, it's a big deal, and, and I think what you find is that when you actually dig into the stuff that was written at the time of the battle, or, or really close to it, uh, a lot of this this argument of allegedly between Moultrie and, and Lee, or between Rutledge and, and Lee, is, is, is after-the-fact spin. It's some historians looking backwards. Um, Moultrie makes it real clear, some of the other historians or some of the other uh, diarists and memoirists writing in, at the time make it real clear that Lee spent a good chunk of that battle trying to reinforce Moultrie, um, not telling him to abandon uh, Fort Sullivan. Um, I, so I suspect that that story of a conflict between Rutledge and Lee kind of got built up after the war as, as Rutledge's star was rising and Lee's was beginning to fade. Um, uh, so it's just a little bit of early spin in what uh, uh, people chose to write and remember about the Battle of 1776 at Fort Sullivan. You write in your article that Rutledge made a, a great political concession in 1778. What was it? Sure. Well, it, by 1778, um, South Carolina's got this constitutional problem. You remember the 76 Constitution was adopted pre-independence and, and clearly meant to be temporary. Um, it had also come under criticism as being unrepresentative, which it was. The backcountry was underrepresented. Um, and this coincides with um, Rutledge needing to deal with some problems in smuggling and trade. Um, there's, you know, there's rumors going around Charleston that people are smuggling, and they're not just smuggling to... Um, friendly ports, they're smuggling to the British Navy and supplying it while it's doing the blockade. Um, so he wants a board of trade to help sort through these things. Um, the General Assembly meets to discuss his, his, his requests, and they decide to go further, write a new constitution, and go beyond the things that he'd asked. They want to be more representative. Uh, the issue of disestablishing a state-sponsored church is a hot one that gets debated pretty extensively. Um, and they wanted to create a, direct, a directly elected upper chamber to replace a privy council. Uh, the privy council was elected from the assembly by the assembly to advise the president, John Rutledge, uh, about uh, what to do. It was basically a, 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 the 76th Constitution was basically keeping the colonial government structure in place and just replacing the British governor with an, with the South Carolinian as president. Um, so these guys want to go beyond that. And uh, the conservatives and radicals get together, and they agree to do these these three things, disestablish the church, create an upper, a directly elected upper chamber, um, and be more representative by restructuring how they uh, select members. Um, Rutledge vetoes the bill. Uh, he says the assembly cannot, uh, under the 76th Constitution, the General Assembly can't adopt a new constitution. It's overstepping its authority. Uh, he's also real clear he thinks that we need to resolve this conflict with Britain before writing a new constitution. We don't know how this is going to turn out. 
So it's premature, and he doesn't want to go into the business of constantly rewriting constitutions. He argues that the upper chamber would de- would be duplicative, uh, and you'd get gridlock. You know how familiar does that sound, right? You'd get a lower chamber directly elected, and you'd get an upper chamber directly elected, and when they didn't agree, nothing would get done. Um, so he saw that as a as a practical problem. And then he came up with this odd process, uh, this odd argument that the entire process would be undemocratic, since the people through their vote, had already expressed expressed a preference for government made by a general assembly, a single, uh, as a single body. Uh, says he won't, he understands he won't be able to change minds, and he resigns. The assembly adopts the new constitution without him in March 78, but they still thank him for his service. Uh, I, I didn't get into it in the, in the, in the articles, but um, I think there's some other issues going on. The Rutledge family has really dominated South Carolina politics during the war. Uh, it's got um, uh, uh, it's 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 not, tentacles is probably too pejorative, but it's got people in the, in the executive branch in Rutledge. It's got people in the judicial branch in the form, I think, of one of his cousins, um, and it's got um, folks in the, in the legislature. And they've been around for a long time, been in power a long time, and, and bluntly, they've made some enemies. So I think a lot of these folks may have been trying to clip John Rutledge's wings a little bit. Um, either way, the, the, the British invade Georgia in 78. Uh, the first governor elected under the 78 Constitution resigns, and the assembly invites Rutledge back. <laughs> He's back as governor under the new Constitution in February 79, having been out of office less than a year. Um, uh, so that, I, I think, is one of the m- most odd and interesting little uh, adventures um, in in his political life during the revolution. What does Rutledge do after the war? Uh, well, real quickly, he, he's governor when the British invade in uh, 79. Uh, they get to the, the gates of Charleston. He's, he's, uh, they, they eventually withdraw. He's governor again uh, when Clinton shows up in 1780. He's one of the few Rice Kings, uh, probably the wrong way to put it, he's one of the few uh, Charleston patriots to not surrender with the city. He became a government in exile, uh, worked pretty well with Nathaniel Green, spent a good chunk of his time trying to raise uh, resources for to continue the war in South Carolina. Um, and after the war, he ends up representing South Carolina in the Constitutional Convention. Uh, he chaired the Committee of Detail, and these are the folks charged with actually putting pen to paper to draft the wording of the Constitution as the structure is worked out by the convention. So uh, you know, Madison's ideas, uh, many of his, much of his content changes resolved by the convention. Rutledge is running the committee that's actually writing all this down. Uh, during the course of the convention, he favored a unitary executive, he didn't want to. Uh, he wanted the head of state to be the, the head of government and the same person, uh, so we don't have a president, prime minister type thing. Um, he made an important argument for uh, having courts only rule on cases presented to them. He did not want courts to offer advisory opinions on matters that had not come before them as a question of law. Uh, he didn't. He didn't basically want to set up the Supreme Court as as a out there telling the legislature or the executive um, 
how they should behave in a matter consistent with the Constitution. It had to be a case that came before them, so they weren't freelancing. Um, He has a really interesting, he moves on and Washington names him as an associate justice of the Supreme Court in 1789, so he's one of the first few handful of people to serve on the Supreme Court. He took the oath in 1790, but he only served a year, what much to do? Um, then he resigned to go become Chief Justice back in South Carolina, um, and then Washington chooses him again to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1795 after John Jay resigned. Um, it was going to be a recess appointment. Congress had already sort of gone home, um, so Rutledge didn't take the oath until August. The problem that he ran into is he'd given a speech in July, um, and he came out pretty strongly against the Jay Treaty with the United Kingdom. Uh, That cost him support among the Federalists in the Senate and the Federalists in Washington. So when the administration, uh, I'm sorry, the Washington administration, when Congress reconvened, um, you know, it was time to be renominated so he wouldn't be in a recess appointment. Um, Washington did that, but with less enthusiasm. Um, and having found out that he'd given this speech in July, the Federalists came after him, and the Senate rejected his reappointment. So it was the first time the Senate rejected a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, he promptly resigned as Chief Justice, still having that job as a, as a, as a recess appointment. But he'd only been the Chief Justice for 138 days. It was the shortest tenure of any um, Supreme Court justice, I think, to, to this point, to today. Um, unfortunately, this all came sort of near the end of his life. It, it came at a real low point in his life. His wife, Elizabeth, who he had loved very much, uh, died in 1792. They had 10 kids together. And after she died, he really started to go into a downward downward spiral. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that he became an alcoholic, um, that he suffered from just nagging depression. And there's some evidence of suicide, of an attempt at suicide, that he may have jumped into a river attempting to, intending to drown himself before a man saved him. After the Supreme Court mass, he just withdrew from public life, essentially retired, uh, died in 1800, and he's buried in the St. Michael's Church in Charleston. In your opinion, how does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Uh, well, one of the things that I really like about Jar is it highlights folks who aren't the celebrities. Um, and frankly, you know, in the, in the Revolution, there are more of them than there are uh, celebrities like Washington or Jefferson or Adams. You, you don't get there's there are people who don't get their face on the dollar bill or the fi- or the twenty. Um, they don't get musicals made after them, but these are the guys who uh, put their shoulders to the grindstone and just kept grinding it out and doing the work. Uh, and Rutledge was one of those people uh, who did the day-to-day uh, work behind uh, building a new government, uh, making it run right, and um, making decisions and, and moving the country forward towards a goal that uh, uh, people have. And I think that's one of the important things that I like about uh, the journal is, is it, 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 it captures uh, a great swath of those, of those folks uh, who were involved in the war. Uh, and the whole independence movement, the whole, the whole time period. Um, I also think it's important to, that uh, that we look at Rutledge and and see the evolution of his thinking and the evolution of a 
uh, of a person, the, the John Rutledge, who was defending his rights as an Englishman in 1765 and opposing uh, independence in 1776, is not the John Rutledge who is pretty much functioning as a one-man government fighting the British in 1780. Um, so you see a real evolution in the way he approached his job and the way he approached his responsibilities. And I think it showed how somebody could change their interpretation of the best way of, appri- of applying their principles and defending their principles. Um, and I think that's, I, I hope, comes through um, in the course of the series. Eric Sterner, thanks again. My pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.